Hey everybody, welcome to the Good Line Podcast. I'm Aaron Salvato. And I'm Brian Higgins. And we're here with Justin Thomas. Justin, how are you, man? I'm good, great. Thanks for having me. It's so good to have you. Justin is a good man. He's a good guy. He is the pastor uh, at Calvary the Hill in Seattle, which is a great church that I visited once when my wife and I went to Seattle for a wedding. Met Justin there and uh, heard him preach. And then just through my relationship with CGN, Justin's become a friend. Justin, if I can just say something I appreciate about you is you, you're a thinker, which is something I try to be, but you're, you're in a whole nother uh, level, at least in, in my assessment. And you're somebody who has always taken the time to talk to me and let me bounce things off of you. And I've always appreciated that because so many senior pastors are so busy and I know you're very busy, but you, you've taken the time to to entertain my, my ideas and even push back on them and uh, critique them in a way that is loving and kind of in a big brother way. So I'm just really excited to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. And I think I think we all need that. I, I think actually we all need a lot more of that. Mm-hmm. There's a, a strong sense of independence in thought right now, which is which is blind. We, mm-hmm. we got to have the, the dialogue and, and the input and something that I'm always looking for. And it's part of the reason I went back to school is somebody to tell me, like I often tell other people, you know what you should read, right? <laughs> we, we all need our librarians. Mm. Yeah. You've thrown a lot of really good books at me and I, I wish I've been able to dive into all of them, but I've, I've dove into some and they've been very helpful. And I, yeah, I just think that's important. I think you're right. I think that we should process our theology as a community and not just kind of off on our own independent, which is kind of what a lot of pastors and leaders tend to do is just go and formulate their own theology. But for me, my th- the theology that I have that's been formed in community with other people helping me along the way is some of the, some of the theology I hold the most dear. So yeah, right, thank, right. thank you for that, man. This, this was an episode where Brian and I, we, we knew that we wanted to get Justin on the show. We weren't exactly sure what we wanted to talk to him about, though. And so we asked Justin, what do you want to talk about? And he texted back, don't build the house. Don't try to build the house while it's still burning. And we were just like, whoa, what a great episode title right off the bat. It sounds like it would be a really good like post-hardcore album. <laughs> Like I could totally see like as cities burn coming up with that album title. And I was in right away. It's such a great phrase. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we started picking your brain and thinking through what, like, what does he mean by that? And and where we kind of went, where Brian and I went in our mind was sort of, you know, the events of the last two years have been devastating on so many levels. We've got over 650,000 people that have died in the U S alone from disease over 4.6 million worldwide we got financial situations that have been overturned with job losses and mm-hmm. unexpected expenses and things like government lockdowns that have affected people's income and livelihood. You know, important milestone events like weddings and funerals and graduations have looked entirely different than they normally do. And relationships have been strained through physical distance and ideological divides. And so, right. yeah, that that's kind of where our brain went. But we want to step back and kind of let you explain what do you mean like if you were going to give a TED talk right now on don't don't try to build the house while it's still on fire while it's still burning what what would you say yeah you're right it's it's rooted in in the the past year and a half we've had especially but also there's this kind of broader cultural shift that has made this year feel on top of difficult urgent like like it's the last chapter you know, like it's somehow apocalyptic 
and and because of that, you know, it doesn't matter if we're talking about the church's view and place in culture, or if we're talking about the upcoming fate of America, or if we're talking about what work looks like in the next decade, or there's just, it's just an incredible season of change. And then there's this whole reality of what Ed Setzer called the great sort, right? That all these people are shifting their alliances and allegiances and location. And at the same time, there's this real sense of the season coming to an end, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're light at the end of the tunnel. And so there's a desire to rebuild, a desire to look forward, a desire to get back to normal and all these things. And so what's happening in my own heart and in my own church is I'm watching people who are antsy to set things right, or even worse, to make up for lost time. And really what it is, is it's an, it's a, an attempt to escape the present sense of pain and loss that they have. They want to close the book on this year and move on. And, mm -hmm. and it's short-sighted in the way that that image I suggested points to. And so the second thing is beyond thinking about this year, thinking in that image, you know, this is the picture that I have that we right now as, as Christians in our churches, in our own individual lives and in our nation, it's like we're standing in the street, you know, wrapped in blankets with the red blue lights of the ambulance next to us and watching everything that we've known and loved and built. And it's it's still burning. And mm. there's a there's all the questions of what do we do now? Where are we going to live? How much have we lost? You know, where do we even begin? But the fire's not over. And and that's more than just COVID and Delta variant. I think the the things that have toppled over the last year and a half or are still toppling are even more significant than we yet realize. And so it's it's not a time to try and rush and build the sandcastle all over again, forgetting that there's another wave coming. And it's not a time to to be quick with a hurting people, you know, who are in triage. It's not time to walk into the medical tent and say, all right, now we're going to storm the beaches. You know, it's, it's a time for repair and introspection for reflection and patience. And even where we experiment and do new things that experimenting needs to be laboratory size. It needs to be small, you know, mm -hmm. instead of, instead of taking 2019 and comparing it to 2020 and then trying to, add everything to get back to 2019, we need to start at zero and, and build. Yeah, it's interesting to me you're bringing up this idea of the goal can't be let's just go back to 2019. Because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that if we actually go back to that time, we'll realize that culturally we weren't super happy then either. Like we, we had right. different problems, but I don't remember us in 2018 and 2019 as a culture being like, this is utopia. We found it. Like we finally figured it all out. I guess when I think about all of this, I do find myself though saying, if only we could go back, like if only we could get back to February, 2020, why do you think it is that we idealize these past moments and just completely forget how they weren't the paradise that we remember them to be? I, I think it's all rooted in pain. And mm -hmm. if only statement is always contrasted with the present, right? Mm -hmm. And so it really says more about the present than it ever said about the past. And all we're really trying to say is, I wish I wasn't here or I wish I wasn't now. 
but but I actually think the issue is deeper than just our idealizing of the past. It's we need to remember that in 2019, we were not inoculated against 2020. We were not prepared. And to go back would leave us in the same condition, whether those things were showing or not. The division that showed up in our churches last year already existed. We were not a church that could, with unity, navigate the year like 2020. And the truth is, even though there's a sense where we will put the last year behind us, there's another sense where it's here to stay, you know? Mm. And I, I, I think this imagery is too pessimistic and probably too theologically loaded. But just to paint a picture, we just ate the apple and we're now mm. out of the garden. And there's no way back to the garden, even if there's a redemptive path that takes us beyond the garden. You know, the, the way to the past is barred. And so so that's, again, one of the things that I think we need to do is if the house is on fire, we need to do an, you know, an investigative thought on why it burns so brightly. And maybe, maybe 2020 set the fire, but what accelerated and made the damage so deep was not 2020. That was just a circumstance. That was entirely external. But the internal reality of the church, if we just try and, and rebuild based on 2019, then all we'll have is a hollow surface again. That, yeah. that it doesn't have the survivability or the tenacity for, for the world we live in. Yeah, that's really good. I, I resonate with that a lot. I, I would, I would consider myself a highly sensitive person. I think I get it from my, from my mom. <laughs> um, you know, she's similar and you know, I, I tend to empathize with people and, and, and feel the weight of people's distress and, and sorrow. And so I'm sensing so much grief and sorrow right now from people. I mean, and, and we've seen statistics of how many people have jumped out of ministry specifically because of this moment. There's so much division. Like I I remember back in the day where at least, you know, back in the day in my context where the main argument was about eschatology or Calvinism versus Arminianism. And even back then that bothered me how, how aggressive people would get, how divided people would get over those things. So now I look back and it's like, I almost, long for that time period where it was like things seemed so much more simple. And and nowadays people are so divided over everything, you know, political polarization, you know, racial issues, COVID health issues. Like it just seems like every time I get on social media, I can't escape that, that whirlpool pulling me down into more fighting, more division, more arguing and, and more broad brush painting that paints anybody who disagrees as an idiot, as some sort of political shill, as some sort of, you know, apostate. Like there's so much of that going on right now that it's overwhelming. And then when you bring it to the context of as a leader, looking at the people you're called to shepherd and it's like, man, what are they going through? How are they processing this? And, and how do I even deal with the, the wide spectrum of differences in belief among my own people? I think we've, We've learned a lot of wrong ways to go about that over the last year. You know, there are the people who have, whichever side of the issue they're on, taken the momentum of our times and and tried to use it to lead their churches through this. And mm. that mm. it may be a long time till that starts to show its consequence, but it will. And then there's the ones who tried to not address these things and kind of compartmentalize Christianity and make it small enough that it had nothing to do with these things. And that didn't work either. And 
and even the ways that I would paint as more faithful to to try and get everybody to slow down and to think, you know, not mm. just to avoid the issue and at the same time not to talk about it in a way that was pre-coded and you just had to choose an option. You know, the meals we're serving are, are A or B and then Christians mm. went, mm. well, A is the faithful option or B is the faithful option. The mm. slow road of going, wait, hold on, let's return to the scriptures. Let's think through these things. It's not popular. No, and one of the reasons it's not popular is because it doesn't resolve the pain. It doesn't give you anyone to blame in the short-sighted mm. way. And it doesn't, it doesn't demonize. It, it requires way too much introspection to ask where you're breathing the same thing, you know, that you condemn. And, and then even walking that road didn't avoid all the division or, or the, the pain, you know? And so personally, there were many times this year where I kind of felt like, what's even the point of trying? And, and yeah. you know, I'm in a better place now, not trying to build a house that's burning is one thing, letting it burn and walking away and just giving up. That, that I sensed and tasted and felt it like everybody else this year. And, and wow. like probably everyone else on record, there is no year comparable to the last year I've ever had in ministry. I've never been, so mm. tired or so broken or so afraid, you know, wow. or so close to quitting. think that's exactly the question that I wanted to ask based on all of this. The the reasons we're doing these things, like you're saying, it, it's a pain response. We don't want to have to deal with the pain. And Aaron opened this kind of segment on give us your, your TED Talk pitch. And this is a pretty sad TED Talk. You know, like this is asking people <laughs> lean into yeah. the pain, really embrace it and feel it. And I think in most churches... We have this general understanding that God has an ability to work through painful situations, you know, that they're, they're not just interruptions to God's work, but they are one of the things that he uses to work in different ways. What do we stand to gain if we don't go for the quick medication of division makes this simple, so I'll just be divisive? Like if we push back from all of that and we watch it burn and we really observe what we can about the fire... What do we actually stand to gain by doing that? Because like you're saying, it's an extremely difficult road. Right. Mm. So what I would suggest is outside the church, our culture is already starting to show the wear and weakness of all of these approaches. And, mm. and for me, a major issue is, is the revolution we've had over the last decade in issues of sexuality and how to navigate those. Mm. But, but we need to understand that all of these approaches, and it doesn't matter if we're talking about Twitter hostility or, or a thousand other things, all of them don't build community. They mm -hmm. don't move towards human flourishing in the collective communal sense that the Bible means it, which means that we've got a lot of people who have making, who have made, like Jeremiah condemned, broken cisterns that can hold no water, which means they're going to be growing and growing and growing in thirst. What I'm suggesting is, as a church, we need to take the approach that goes and finds and digs the wells. And it, that takes time. It's not easy or simple. You know, we, we aren't just hucksters selling water bottles. We have to rediscover 
you know, where the water is and be ready and available, you know. And so this is different than just a monastic retreat that says Rome is on fire, flee to the wilderness to preserve Christianity. Rod Dreyer's book that kind of suggests that approach, the Benedict option, opens with this quote that I've not stopped thinking about. It says that tradition is not the worship of the ashes, but the preservation of fire, right? And so it's not living in the past and holding on to it as some sort of self-contained hope because everything else has gone to pot. It is, it is a protective and externally oriented for the sake of ourselves and the world at large. And, and, you know, I think this year and this last decade has exposed that the church didn't know the things it thought it knew. Mm. And, that we've been relying on views of sexuality or views of government or views of culture that had very little to do with with the realities of scripture. And and so we have to, you know, follow the advice of the reformers and in se Semper Reformanda and go back to the beginning and take new questions to the same longstanding truth that we've always had, but with the time scale that recognizes quick answers. You know, I, I guess what I'm suggesting is one of the ideas of not trying to build the house while it's burning is to stop thinking about what you can do now and start preparing for what you will be able to do later. Yeah, mm. that's good. I, I like that. And and something that you spoke on earlier was you were talking about people wanting those quick answers and not being willing to sit with the pain with the complexity, with the nuances of our current moment. And, you know, one thing that I've observed is because so much of this pain is based around ideological differences, or at least that's a big part of it, I think what we see in this moment is we see people rushing to find ideological allies that provide them with neat packaged answers that fit their presuppositions and views. I've seen so many people on social media t say things like, oh, yeah, your pastor said that time to find a new church. Like, right. oh, so your, your your pastor said this thing about racial justice, time to find a new church. So your your pastor, you know, is anti-vaccine, time to find a new church. It's like, they're, they're, you know, and I just, I just, you know, spoke of two examples that kind of fit stereotypes on different ideological sides. Unfortunately, you know, it, we, yeah. we've we've categorized things so narrowly now where it's like one slight thing said automatically puts you on this side. One thing puts you on that side, which I think is sad, but I think we, we see people so ready right now to ditch their community, to ditch their church family, to ditch a pastor that's poured into them for years. I know of one Calvary pastor who, you know, for his privacy, I'm not going to name his name, but great guy, amazing guy. And during all of the racial injustice stuff that was going on recently, he, he did a sermon series on racism and basically half of his church left. Yeah. I went back and listened to the whole series. It was not woke progressive theology. He wasn't preaching CRT. He was literally just talking about racism as if it was a sin, like he would any other sin. And, right. and, and, and half of his church left him and smeared his name and then started accusing him of like, oh, so you probably think abortion's fine too, right? And right. he said he had to, you know, pull his people together and do a town hall meeting and basically say, no, like, I, of course I think abortion is wrong. Why does me literally bringing up the, the fact I believe racism is a sin automatically in your brain put me in this category? So can you speak to, to that division yeah. we're seeing? Well, 
obviously the story you just shared is not unique or rare. Yeah. Every church has, has navigated that and, and faced that. And, and you touched on a lot of the things that I think are commonalities in that, that it's not about what you said, but what you might say next. That has been a a common trait, you know, Mm. of these things. But what I think is most important here is the difference between theology and ideology. Mm. Theology, by its nature, at least from a Christian viewpoint, is about confrontation and transformation. Mm. It it assumes, you know, like G.K. Chesterton said, that where we need religion is not where we we are right, but where we are wrong. Mm. Right. It's about change. But ideology is about confirming and upholding the status quo. It's about continuing with the worldview as you have it and supporting it and distancing yourself from those who disagree. Mm. Those are diametrically opposed. Mm. And and so being able to recognize the difference between that is important. And, And another part of it is ideology focuses on the enemy without, but theology focuses on the enemy within, you know, Mm. and Mm. and that difference as well. We've got to we've got to teach our people to search their own hearts and the scriptures as well for, for the way that they need to change instead of this protectivist, you know, view of, of the other that may change you in ways that make you unfaithful or, or these Mm. types of things, which is a real part, you know, the new Testament spends a lot of time warning us that all ideas lead somewhere. And that means that false teaching is significant and dangerous, but, but we have a culture right now that is being perpetually shaped and conformed by all of these sources. And, and I think it's overwhelmed the formative practices of the church And again, that's not an easy fix. You can't just tell people to kill their TVs and expect this to go away. (laughs) The inoculation that I mentioned earlier that may have preserved us from what happened in the church in 2020 requires something stronger and more robust than what's coming at it. You know, it requires a defense that can withstand the onslaught of our times. And onslaught Mm. is the right word. You know, information fatigue is one of the ways we just talk about the world we live in. It is the sheer amount of interaction or data or opinions or or emotions or news that we face that makes our times unique. I love your defining of the difference between theology and ideology. Mm. I think one of the things that we've seen break down or, or one of the breakdowns perhaps that has become apparent is for many Christians, what should have been theology was acting as an ideology. But I don't know if it almost sounds like I'm accusing other people of doing this. I'm genuinely trying to ask this in like an introspective way. I'm not sure where my theology has begun to act like an ideology. I'm not sure where I've just used Christianity to Hmm. confirm the viewpoints that I have of the world and to try to press those viewpoints onto others. 
how can we begin the process of parsing that out? I, I know it's a giant question and yeah, you're already question. saying it's a, it's a long answer. So I know yeah. that we won't have just like a five minute sound bite that ends with sweet. We did it. But where <laughs> right, would you right, begin? Right. So I'm, I'm not, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on your guys's wonderful podcast, but I'm not much of a podcast person. Um, how dare the, you, sir? One of the few That's exceptions neither. though, is the Tobolowski, Tobolowski files, where B-list actor Stephen Tobolowski tells stories about his life. And he's an incredible storyteller. <laughs> but I remember listening to him once, and he was talking about, about being lost. And he was talking about how he and his son and their Boy Scout troop went to see the Bridge to Nowhere, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a New Deal bridge that was built, and roads aren't there. And so it's just a bridge in the middle of the wilderness that has no access. And so they were out traveling, and he got in a discussion with his son. They lost track of the troop and then realized that they were lost. And he said, and I think this is genius, he said, the thing about being lost is not that you don't know where you are, but that you don't know when you are. Because if you could just go back to when you took the wrong turn, you wouldn't be lost anymore. And then he uses that mm -hmm. as a framework to ask the question, where did my last marriage go wrong? Where did we get off on the wrong road instead of now it's lost? And we live in a culture that tends to condemn the past so holistically that we see our answers and our time as the first solution to a problem without asking, where did the problem start? Yeah. without going backwards. Mm. And I would suggest to you one of the reasons why at least the American church has wrestled with 2020 so much is because we are no longer rooted, mm. right? We can no longer, and, and for us within Calvary, doubly so, right? We, we trace our roots back to the 1970s. That's it. Before that, the there was nothing. past. Yeah. Be, before that, there was nothing. It was just BC, before Calvary, right? And that lack of rootedness means that we end up co-opting our times more mm. because, mm. because our, our culture, it, it's, the, it's the imminent reality that we live in that shapes us and not a history, you know? Mm. And this is what's, even on the personal level, what's so significant about Ephesians 1 it gives us an origin story, right? It goes all the way back in time and says, if you want to understand who you are, it begins with a loving God. But at the corporate or at the cultural side, it's the same, it's the same type of issue. And so I guess what I would suggest is if we find strange fruit in the tree we call the American church, it's because there's other plants growing up along in it that we've mistaken for the tree. And and so, again, this is a long and slow road. Rootedness is something that takes time and effort and, and is seasonal, right? And so we may be in a planting season and not a reaping season. And unfortunately, as Americans, we, we have a hard time rejoicing in that. Yeah. We, we want the fruitfulness now, you know, we, and, and in Calvary, even more so I heard Brian Broderson say one time that Calvary needs to redevelop its philosophy of ministry for how we function in a time that isn't revival. And what he recognized mm. was a lot of the way we went about things was built on the back of a move of God. And we long for and should continue to pray for such a move. But what does it look like in the fallow years, right? What does mm. it look like in the winter of history to be a faithful Christian? What does it look like to have the ministry of Jeremiah where God tells you up front, hey, look, you're not going to see a lot of fruit from this, but that is all preparation for exile. And there is no seek the peace of the city, 
right? Without the strain and toil and defeat of Jeremiah generation prior. Hmm. Yeah, it's good, man. Everything that you're saying just has me thinking about the term chronological snobbery. Would that sure. apply? Yeah. To what you're yeah, saying? Absolutely. And, and I think the danger is that we tend to accuse non-Christians of that and think that we escape it yeah. as Christians. But, but, you know, David Foster Wallace presented this idea one time of, of that we're all living in the world we are. We're just fish in water. And if you ask a fish about water, he says, what's water, right? Because it's where he's swimming. Right. And we too quickly distance ourselves from the culture around us and, and don't recognize that this is what we live and breathe and have our being in, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean that there isn't significant transformation or counterculture in the church, but the, the danger of culture is that it's unseen and assumed. Mm. Right. And yeah. And so it's easy for us to look at Christians at other time and go, how could you possibly believe this or do that or the other? And yet we don't have the humility to go, where is that the truth for us today? Yeah, I know. I think that's exactly right. And, and the, the chronological snobbery aspect of it, which is believing that you know better because as time has gone on, things have progressed to this point where it's like, okay, now we understand. And in the past, they didn't know what they were talking about. So for Brian and I, and I'm assuming you, Growing up in, and, and it's a context we're grateful for, but growing up in the theological conservative context, and that's a context that we, we still firmly find ourselves planting in, you know, it's easy to look at secularists, progressives, and to see their, their chronological snobbery, right, that says, you know, things like, okay, our idea of sexual ethics has evolved and progressed, and the Bible really didn't know what it was talking about. And and we understand the way things are supposed to be now. That's one way that we see it manifest. But I think it's exactly right. We need to be aware how it manifests on our own side. And so, you know, just thinking of what I've seen, in, especially on social media, in sort of the theological conservative sphere, there's been this hostility and anger and animosity and almost hatred towards progressives and towards sure. secularists. And And then you try to bring up things like, okay, well, what does Jesus say? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Paul says these people aren't our enemies. They're victims of the true enemy. We, we don't fight battles against flesh and blood, right? We're, these people are prisoners of sin. Our job is to go in and, and not do war with them, but to do war with the enemy to try to free them from those chains. And then people will look at you and just say, well, that's not how things work anymore. Like, love your enemies. That Like, they're looking at the, I, the you know, the, the, the pundits, the, the people that represent their worldview outside of the church, and they're getting their cues from them. And it's like these people talk in these very angry tones and these very aggressive tones. They go after and attack people. Yeah. That, that's you know how what we is? should be acting. It's, it's Joshua, right, who's standing out looking over Jericho, and here comes a man in full armor, and he says, are you for us or against us? And the angel of the Lord says, no, (laughs) you've got it backwards. I am the general. I am the army. I'm calling the shots. It's not, am I on your side, but are you on my side? You know? Mm -hmm. And, and so, yeah, I mean, what we've just touched on is pride and, Mm -hmm. and Christians have always known and always succumb to the reality of arrogance of being God's people, you know, just like Israel did, which always befuddles our ability to repent and, uh, and so, yeah, I think those are, are real issues. And, you know, the way I see it with the conservatives and, and the progressives is that progressives are more open to the questions of our time. 
True. Right. Conservatives tend to shut down the questions and go, that doesn't need to be asked or that's already been answered or they they give, you know, pat answers from from old questions or these types of things. Progressives are more open to the questions, but they look everywhere but the scriptures for answers. True. Which means True. they usually find the same answers of our times, whatever time yeah. that is. Right. But but the process for Christians, that Semper Reformata idea that I mentioned earlier from the Reformation, always reforming, means that we take new questions to the same source of truth. Mm-hmm. And and I think we're all in danger of not completing the circle, you know, the, the hermeneutical circle of returning back to, you know, it, it's as if scripture is an anvil, right? And it can wield... Uh, truth, the blade of truth, and it doesn't bend based on the ha- hammers of our time or of our question. But but you take that anvil away and you bang the sword and it just takes on the shape of the hammer, right? Mm. You have to have both elements. And, and that, I think, goes back to your question earlier about, you know, when theology becomes ideology, it's right there. Mm. It's when ideology becomes stasis that's unwilling to to grow or reconsider or or arrogant I'm trying to think through, I, I really like the phrase you used. It's not just where did you get lost, but when did you get lost and when did you go wrong? Right. And one of the thoughts that I have on that is, do we need to re-examine the way that we approach and preach the gospel? Because mm-hmm. when I think about the, the time of the church in America that I grew up in, the gospel was very much, you're a broken person, you're going to hell, and Jesus can save you. If you pray this prayer and keep coming to this building, one day you will go to heaven when you die. And all the kind of change and formation and the things we're talking about that have led to some of the breakdown of what we're seeing today of people are being more formed by media and culture and by our current times as opposed to being formed by Jesus— all of that was kind of like the extra credit assignment or, or so it felt like, like, yeah, if you can get some of this done, like that'd be really cool too. Right. But even if you don't, no big deal. The future is still secure. So you can just kind of hang out until then. Yeah. Do you think that that needs to be rethought or at the very least emphasized in different ways? And, and maybe it's maybe when we're going wrong is from that very beginning of how we're actually preaching the gospel. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that's definitely a a part of it. And it's been much talked about, you know, these are big issues for guys like N.T. Wright and the like, who have who have basically said we've we've soft peddled salvation. And and I think that's true. But I but I also think that the the forms or the manifestations that that philosophy takes, which is more than just preaching a fuller gospel, they're more robust than we we currently practice, you know, and so. I mean, there's so many things that I could bring up on this. There's our there's our anti-institutional bent, which is not just cultural, but is within the church. There's the individualistic philosophy that that thinks not just of salvation is about individuals, but all of life in individual concerns. There's so many things that that we could trace. 
that are all part of that. But but ultimately, it comes back to this idea of of not just discipleship, not just your life is is to follow in Christ's footsteps and grow, but a philosophy of the church that that says you're now part of this new community, mm, and yeah. and that can't just be uh, a resource to be consumed, an event to be attended. Or, or a list of service opportunities to qualify you for something. It has to be a new humanity. Mm-hmm. And, and I actually think all Christians taste this all the time. I think the hard part is that we're reluctant to lean into it. And a lot of the struggle of our times right now is because of a poor ownership of human limitation. And the church is bought into that. And so now we think of ministry, you know, in ways that would have been impossible in the 15th century because of modern technology and because of convenience and because of image and ambition and these types of things, you know. And so, for example, I'll give you a perfect example. When the Young, Restless and Reform movement got going, one of the big books that everybody loved to talk about was Richard Baxter's uh, Reformed Pastor. And I mean, it was right in the title, Reformed Pastor, right? But when I talked with people about the book, it seemed like everybody was rightly obsessed with a single sentence, which I still love, enough that I've memorized it. Baxter said about his own ministry, I preached as though to never preach again as a dying man among dying men, right? Mm-hmm. Beautiful emphasis of the importance and the significance. But the main point of the book was if you're not doing visitation and in the homes of your people, you're not a pastor. That's his main message. And that fell on deaf ears because because the mobile models and the campus models and the over the airwave models, all these things were driving so strongly, we couldn't hear that. And so I would suggest, again, going back to the idea of when we went wrong, sometimes it's good to look back at when the church didn't have certain problems and Mm. and ask what was different, you know, and. I've always believed read dead people is good advice. And that's yeah. <laughs> another thing that's hard in our in our constant publishing time. The book list of 2020 is too long to read, but it's also really not worth reading because it's full of redundancy, repetition. It all shares the same blind spots and mm. the same solutions, you know. Mm. And so when we read broadly across the generations of history, we start to not just think, I can't believe they believed that, which is that cultural snobbery part, but also... Now, why did they do that differently? Or why don't we do things this way? Or why do we no longer do that? Which are all just as important of questions. And, you know, and it also presents what I think is the greatest challenge of ministry in our time, which is trying to do right things in a wrong time. It's the wrong time to do right things in terms of (laughs) of hope. You know, there's a story I always think about where a man is backpacking through Ireland and and he walks into a tavern in Cork and he asks the bartender, he says, can you tell me how to get to Dublin? And the bartender shakes his head and he said, man, if I were going to Dublin, I wouldn't start from here. Right. That is the time that we live in. Being able mm-hmm. to paint what a church should look like would be so much easier if we didn't live in a place where it was so needed. You know, in a time where we are so incapable of human relationships and where where society has broken down so much and where we're so so shaped by this culture we're trying to push against, you know, and that means we fall in two ditches. On the one side, we start as close to people where they are to make it accessible and available, and that leads to less change. Or on the other side, we have very high standards, but we're too far away from where people begin. 
you know, and so mm. nobody joins in and things don't happen. And to be honest, those are the questions I wrestle with all the time of trying to mm. put myself on the graded scale of that and try to figure out how to keep people moving. And again, how to create not just a message or a sermon that communicates a full gospel, but how to actually cultivate a life that can sustain it. It's mm. really good. mentioned briefly technology, and I'd, I'd love to jump into that for a minute because I want to ask you first up the, the question, how do you see technology contributing to this moment? Do you feel like technology is throwing gasoline on the fire of the house burning? Is it helping put out the fire in any ways? And then it, when we were texting back and forth this week, we were, we were just getting into technology, getting into a little bit of a back and forth on kind of the contrast between sort of that more monastic approach of we just need to go and disconnect from technology and just live in our tiny little church communities and not engage with the broader world or alternatives to that. And and you said in your text that we've, we may have reached a topic where you and I, Justin, might be diametrically opposed. Yeah. And I wasn't actually sure what you meant by that. So I wanted to, I wanted to find out what, what did you actually mean by that? So I could get into, you know, where our differences might be or right. might not be. So Jesus pointed out that the culture of his time both condemned him for, for, you know, attending the parties with tax collectors and contemned, condemned John the Baptist for, for being so aesthetic. Right. Mm. And yet both of them, in fact, he hold, he upholds John as being like the one true honorary member of the kingdom of God before its inauguration. <laughs> right. He holds him in very high regard, but the approach is very different. And I would suggest that there's room for both of those responses on this issue, that there is mm. room to thoughtfully pursue faithful engagement with all possible ways of communicating to mm. recognize that our time has given us new ways to do things that can be leveraged for the kingdom. Mm. However, I also feel there is an underrepresented, maybe even a voice crying in the wilderness reality that says, but can this do what we say it does? Or does it just push us further down the line? You know, like you said, the gasoline on a fire, fire issue. And so, for example, the difference between social media and basically every other form of communication in throughout history, I think is often lost on us because because public debate and dialogue has always been a part of life. But mm -hmm. if you did that in Greece, you debated one other person with an audience and mm -hmm. we pretend that social media is the same. It's not. It's a debate with the mob. Right. Mm -hmm. It has no rules of engagement that allow for long form discussion for points to be made or seated because the audience is so participatory <laughs> in the same way. The format itself is so shorthand that it makes us move towards banner statements, summary statements, like you said, all in a single tweet. Here is the solution. Here is the truth, which is just a misunderstanding of, of life. Honestly, mm. you know, mm. when when the world changes because of an idea, it changes in in the amount of fifteen hundred pages, not mm. in the amount of one hundred and forty four characters. 
And and then there's the and this is what I was talking about with limits earlier. There's the fact that you were talking disembodied with people in different times, places, settings, scenarios, and you don't have any of that context information, let alone share it. And all of that is new. Hmm. And so there may be new advantages, but we are very poor. And this is this is a human reality. We are very poor at spotting the disadvantages of new things. And so what we do is we build the best system we can and then the negative consequences are shown later. But what I'm suggesting is there's a need right now for the church, at least in some quarters, to take a more John the Baptist approach and still pursue their neighbors, but focus on the neighbors they actually interact with. Because this is another thing. We fool ourselves and we say that we're doing the work of Jesus by communicating with the world, but it it doesn't change our impact with our closest neighbors at all. And, Mm -hmm. And let's move away from technology in the electronic sense and talk about a different technology. Think about the megachurch. Okay. Not that they haven't happened throughout history, but there's a reason why they haven't been common because they involve a certain amount of resources and a certain amount, you know, building a thousand person sanctuary is a big deal. Mm. But one of the things, at least in an urban setting like I am, that mega churches do without wanting to is alienating their closest physical neighbors. Because mm. if you were a mega church, you are a commuter church, period. You are drawing people from way further into a single neighborhood, and then those cars park and clog the streets of the closest neighbors to the building. Again, all I'm suggesting to you is that this is new, and it goes unnoticed, Mm -hmm. right? And so I am drawn towards hyper-local church ministry realities that are inherently relational, not because I don't think we can do good things with those other things, but because these good things are left undone. And I'm, I'm curious what we could do with them. And so you want to talk about my ideal. My ideal is that my whole church would live within the sound of a church bell, which I know is a really <laughs> old idealistic way to put it. But I've yeah. tasted, I've tasted the potential here. My neighborhood is 60,000 people in a square and a half mile. Mm. Okay. And what happens is that means that I run into the people who live in my neighborhood all the time. Even though I don't know all 60,000 of them, the ones I do know live in such a small Petri dish that we see each other all the time. When that involves my church members, it means that I meet their neighbors and they say, Mm -hmm. this is my pastor. And I point across the park and say, there is our church building, right? Their neighbors are my neighbors, are the church building's neighbors, Mm -hmm. right? When, When those things start to come together as they were just naturally in a more limited time before technology got involved, there is an exponential value that the church is deeply lacking and constantly struggling to make up for. It's the same mm. problem with mega churches. They're fighting so hard to make community because their size prohibits it. Yeah. But, but yeah. that's a problem they made. That's a problem they chose, you know? Right. right. And, and for mega churches, so I, I see, I see a similarity between mega churches and then let's call them mega Christian influencers on social sure. media. Yeah where you build this machine and it needs money to work. It needs funding to work. And there can be a subtle shift in the mind where it goes, I have all these people. I need to keep them happy. I can't challenge them too much. I can't convict them too much. I need to just keep giving them what they want 
and not challenge them because if I do, I'm going to lose my funding and then I got to fire people on my staff and I can't do the initiatives I want to do. So I know that's a cynical way of looking at it, but I've seen that play out on the social media side. I don't think I would be in disagreement with so much of what you're saying. The, the you know, the, the be living in, in, in within earshot of the church bell, I think is a beautiful ideal on social media. What I've seen with Christians that form these massive influencer followings is I hardly ever see them challenge their own followers. Very often it's critiquing the other, it's demonizing the other, and it's really just feeding people the outrage that they already want. And, and, and I think that can be, that can be a dangerous thing. I, I think that, you know, for, for me personally, the way that this is kind of played out is, you know, I'm in a season where I'm not pastoring at a local church but I very deeply have a desire for discipleship. And so Brian and I have been doing that through this podcast and we don't have Mm -hmm. like a massive audience, but there's an aspect of, you know, there's no community in just getting on these mics and putting a message in a bottle and throwing it out for whoever to listen to. So for me, I was like, I need some sort of community based around the ministry I'm doing. So I started a, a little Bible study that was an invitation to the listeners of this show where it was like, Hey, if you're, if you're young, college age person who feels like you don't have a lot of Christian community right now. And you're in the process of, you know, in this crazy COVID season, trying to find more local community in the in-between time, let's get together on zoom and let's just talk and let's get to know one another. And it's, it's turned to this beautiful thing where there's now listeners of this show who are messaging me throughout the week and saying, Hey, can I pick your brain about this? Or, Hey, can you pray for me about this? And, and I've, I've seen that to be a really good thing in the meantime, as I'm waiting for myself, a season where more local ministry is possible yeah. and doable. So I think I think there's a lot of value of what you had to say. Yeah. Well, and I would suggest, too, you know, a lot of a lot of the things that you even mentioned right there, I would put in the category of of supplemental. Yes. And, and the need for supplements in our time are, are really significant. You know, I've, I've made a habit the last few years of attending the revoice conference, which is a conference that deals, um, with issues of sexuality in a way that makes room for what we call side B Christians who no neither affirm nor, nor do they take the ex gay group approach. They see themselves as as being same-sex attracted, as the Bible's teaching on these things, providing either lifelong celibacy or differing orientation marriage is the only options, but they're not seeking transformation of these things or heterosexuality as a mark of faithfulness or these types of things. And mm-hmm. one of the things that's really interesting about that group is there's such a minority position that for a lot of people, that one meeting that is national is a lifeline for them and their communities that they maintain of support because they are um, not vocal about these things in their own churches and families are entirely online. You know, if you look at Japan's shut in problem, Japan is a nation full of people who never leave their apartments and only exist online. How are you going to meet and and save those people as Christians, you're going to have to meet them where they are, even if it's the church of world of Warcraft, right? Those are always (laughs) necessary. And in the same way, um, you know, finding a place to talk about issues or an online community for discussion, those are never going to be losses, except when they keep us from closer wins. And and again, if we want to talk about podcast preaching, I think we could get get a good illustration. There's plenty of great preaching and we should make ourselves available to it. But if it 
leaves somebody justified in not attending a local church mm. or disqualifies the local churches because the preaching's not as good, then it is, it is a loss and not a win. You know, yeah, full, and, fully agree with that. And so Absolutely. I guess what I'm trying to say is my tendency more is to try and avoid those losses entirely. And again, not because the supplements aren't needed, but because the the robust alternative, the unplugged churches, you know, the the new monasticism, which I mean in a very specific way and not the way it's traditionally meant, that is an undertapped resource right now. And and I think the things the church is trying to find right now are all going to be cultivated in those laboratories. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. That's good. I think everything you're saying is so much wisdom. That's why, you know, when I did start my midweek Bible study, which morphed into sort of by, you know, or, or twice a month theology class that's sort of a midweek thing. I told people, hey, I don't want you coming to this if it's going to replace church. Right. Like you, sh- you should still be going to a local church. This is more of a supplemental, if you're having a hard time finding extra community with other Christians, talking, discussing, learning with other Christians in, in some local context, this is a way to do that online. But I want to touch on one other thing that I, I think might play into our idea of maybe us having opposing opinions or different opinions. And I I want to touch back on what you said about Jesus and John the Baptist, because I, I don't know if this is what you were saying, but this is where my mind went. So I want to get clarity. So when it comes to approaches on social media, I think I do see two different approaches at times. I see the Jesus approach, which is what I would describe as spending time with sinners, being gentle with sinners, with people who don't know the Lord or people who are doubting or struggling or backsliding, having a a tone of gentleness where you're willing to wrestle through the deep issues with them, where you're willing to not just leave a comment where it's like, you're wrong. Here's this verse that says that you're wrong, but instead to like point them to the fact that they're wrong, but in a much more gentle shepherding way, Jesus spending time with tax collectors and prostitutes, that's the mentality. So I see, I see people operating in that way. That's, that's the stance I tend to take. That's actually the class that I taught at the CGN conference of basically how to be on social media as a pastor and have a shepherding heart and not be a jerk. I, but I do see people taking more of a John the Baptist stance where it's like, I'm going to boldly proclaim that it is wrong for King Herod to be doing what he's doing. And I don't care if I get thrown in social media jail for it or, or real jail, you know, and I see a lot more people attracted to that way. You get a a lot, you get a lot more likes taking those bold stances. Are you, but are you saying that there's place for both and that maybe people who are wired like me should have a little bit more grace for people who are wired more like John the Baptist and realize that maybe we need both not not necessarily at least at least that's not where where i was headed what what okay. i was trying to contrast was was not so much the disposition or the approach of jesus and john the baptist but the participation versus non-participation hmm. john was in the wilderness not engaging with the culture of his time whereas whereas jesus was was in the midst and so mm-hmm. you know if if we could follow john and jesus on twitter would their personalities come through absolutely <laughs> but but more my my point is that there's a value in non-participation as long as it's not just abstinence 
It has mm. to be a no for a greater yes. Right. Mm. And for me, for me, that means that it's a no. It means I'm not on social media. It means that I toy with ideas of getting rid of our church website and telling our congregation the first place our church is going to be met by our neighbors is face to face with you. So if Mm. if they don't know you, they won't know our church. Right. Mm -hmm. And then and then the the locality, you know, again, it's it's um, it's those types of places where it's not that I don't believe good can be done in those places, but I wonder if more good can be done by by the places that we're either distracted or limited from because because of those things, you know, and mm, and again, it stems that. from I'm trying to think of how it stems from the zeitgeist of our times. Right. It stems from the fact that whatever you want Twitter to be, that's not what it is. Twitter has its own thing and it moves like a rushing river at a certain course. And so even trying to do things that are against the grain of that get pulled in the direction of it and become part of it. You know, it's the it's the classic Black Mirror episode where the guy uh, works his way to get on television and condemn the whole system. And it's so received that they hire him and he becomes a pundit who condemns the whole system every right. And he just becomes a part of the thing that he supposedly hates. That is a particular problem with technology Mm. that technology, because it's so powerful and so useful conforms the user. And so again, that's not technology is bad and it's not denying the supplemental, but but I think there is, I, I'm just surprised it hasn't happened yet. I'm surprised there hasn't been an unplugged church movement. I'm surprised there haven't been churches that have not demanded that people gotten rid of their iPhones, but collectively moved away from that, you know, because because I think it's it's a missing component of our time. And there are things that will be learned there, laboratory, experimentally there, that will benefit the whole church. But they cannot be learned without that. You know, we're we're trying to go what does it look like to be a local church again? We've been asking that question for a decade. We cannot answer that question until we stop being a global church. We can't. It's really good. First of all, I'd like to say that that was the smoothest transition I've ever seen from John the Baptist to Black Mirror. So very well done. (laughs) I really appreciate everything you're bringing up. I, I find myself personally very drawn to that kind of direction of how local can a church possibly be Right. Can you have a thriving community that is a church that all lives within one mile of each other? Like, I, I find all of those ideas really exciting and really invigorating. I kind of contrast them with when when the pandemic first hit and when everything was shutting down and churches were just putting services online. One of the things that I think we all kind of bristled at was the idea of the idea that you put a few songs and worship online does not mean that you've done church. It started to become clear that church is so much more than did this product go out? Did people sit down and hear music played to them and hear teaching come to them to kind of go all the way back to the burning house analogy? Do you think this kind of hyper relational, hyper local pulling away from some of the mainstream influences of culture Do you think part of it is not even the house is burning and we can rebuild it differently as much as it's maybe we were living in the wrong house all along. The right house is actually way behind us. We don't need to get this one put back together. We need to actually go find what the right one was. Yeah. And and I would suggest even more than that, that sometimes the only way we can we can discover that is is that, you know, God has to faithfully demolish the old house. 
He has to take mm. it from us. And, mm-hmm. you know, all the things that you just mentioned about the consumerism of Christianity and these types of things, we've been talking about those for 20, 30 years, but we've been <laughs> unable to make any changes because we're reluctant. You know, we're like, we're like the restaurant owners in an episode of Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay, who have three old biddies who love the old menu and are dying, but are afraid to change the menu and lose the customers they have. Right. Mm. And and so, you know, so I think there are some realities there. And that's exactly definitely what I mean by this image is we should be slow to rebuild because it's a time to ask and assess the building and say, should we build it the same way? You know, it's a time to imagine. And and I think a lot of a lot of churches have recognized this year that things that were not really working are no longer assumed to be normative. And so they don't have to come back. You you have a place to start new things and not have to do the hard work of convincing people that this is no good, you know, because it's gone and we can we can start fresh. But but the question is, are we only going to do that in the context of our view of church again, meaning this ministry doesn't fulfill our needs, that ministry you know, needs this adjustment? Or are we going to do the big back to the drawing board thing that is uniquely available to times where nothing exists, to frontier mm. work, to innovation, to seasons of planting? It's mm. good. It's really good. This whole conversation has been really good. I think, I think that nothing bad can come from trying to call people back to simplicity and back to just, I think, I think every, all of us in, in our lives need to constantly be reevaluating and asking ourselves, what does the gospel actually mean? Do I actually understand the gospel? I know for me growing up, the one of the most massive paradigm shifts that happened in my own faith was moving out of this headspace that said, God died for my sins, and if I believe in him, I'll go to heaven, and life here on earth now is really just about being good, following the rules, not messing up, and th- that's it. You know, read your Bible and pray every day to keep God happy with you. And, like, no one really taught me that. It, my parents didn't teach me that. They didn't hand that down to me, but it, 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 just, I, it was just sort of assimilated from the culture. It's not what was said. It was what was left unsaid. And so one of the biggest paradigm shifts for me was realizing like Christianity is about a kingdom. Jesus is king. To be a Christian is to look at Jesus as Lord. You know, the Sermon on the Mount isn't just a bunch of, you know, religious sayings of Jesus to help you live a better life and be a better you. It's, it's literally his kingdom manifesto teaching you how to be a part of the new humanity. And, and, and and we're a part of this great grand meta narrative of scripture, which is about God saving the world. And he's called us to be a part of it. And he wants us to participate in the things that he's doing. So, you know, it's like for most Christians growing up, that, that stuff takes time for people to fully realize And maybe it's like we're not doing a better job preaching. I don't know. But for me, I know, even as a pastor's son with great parents and great teachers, it took me time to fully wrap my head around it. And now I feel like I'm still wrapping my head around it. So, yeah. Yeah. And there's a sense where that should be expected, right? Because that's that's what discipleship is. It's it's a lifelong reality of learning. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not about arrival.
you touched on something really significant, which is hard for us as Calvary Chapel folk to recognize, which is that it's not it's not about what's said. And, and I would suggest I would even push back a little bit and say it's not about the things that were left unsaid. It's about the the habitus. It's about mm. the way we go about living that adds to the things that are said emphasis and de-emphasizes mm. other things and and models models a truth. You know, when, when Ephesians says that we are to speak the truth in love to one another, the word f- for speak isn't there. He turns truth into a verb and he says, rather truthing in love. And many commentators believe that Paul is trying to emphasize that the truth is not just something to be stated, but to be lived. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes the body grow. And so the way that we live, you know, impacts the the community that we make and the community that we make informs the meaning of the words we share whether they become symbolic or metaphorical whether they become hypocritical whether they become defining and determined and imbalanced all of that is not shaped by the words that are said but by the plausibility structure created by the culture that holds those truths you know I mean, just take that idea. We hold these truths to be self-evident, right? That means it's not about the words. The words are only an expression of something bigger, something so self-evident it doesn't need to be said. It's cultural. There's always that interplay between truth and incarnation. There's always that inter- interplay between culture and and I- ideas, you know. And And again, I would suggest that all the things that you're talking about, you know, we didn't just need new authors to remind us of those things. Almost every one of those are built on old authors that we had forgotten or neglected. You know, I mean, Kuiper's stuff right now is blowing up because of its value of engaging with culture. But that was written almost 200 years ago now, you know. Mm. Yeah, I I fully agree. I I think that one place I'd want to go, just as we're we're sort of wrapping up this interview. I, I think a direction I'd want to go is addressing the question of, you know, we've got this burning house. What are ways that we can work on putting out the fire? And and, and even should we? Because you talked about just letting the fire burn. But, but are there elements of it that we as pastors and leaders should be trying to extinguish? Like, this is a, a quote that I'll read from a guy named Jay Adams. This is from 1972, A Christian Living in the Home. He says, few things are sapping the strength of the church of Jesus Christ more than the unreconciled state of so many believers. So many have matters deeply embedded in their craw, like iron wedges forced between themselves and other Christians. They can't walk together because they do not agree. When they should be marching side by side through this world, taking men captive for Jesus Christ, they're acting instead like an army that has been rooted and scattered and whose troops in the confusion have begun fighting among themselves. Nothing is sapping the church of Christ of her strength so much as these unresolved problems, these loose ends among believing Christians that have never been tied up. There is no excuse for this sad condition, for the Bible does not allow for loose ends. God wants no loose ends. What, what would you would you agree with him there, or do you have any thoughts on that? Well, first, I think it's a little bit ironic because Jay Adams is is known for being a dogmatic pit bull, especially on the issues of biblical counseling. You know, he I know nothing about him. Oh, yeah. I just I just <laughs> found this quote and was like, "That's a good quote." That's the, that's he, the danger of quotes. I know nothing about this man. <laughs> he famously told a bunch of Christian psychologists that I'd love to call you all heretics, but the creeds don't talk about counseling, so I can't. <laughs> But, but nonetheless, I think, I think there's a true and a false part to what, what Jay Adams is saying here. The true side is that, you know, we've been talking this whole time about a deeper discipleship, 
And, and that's what he's talking about. He's talking about resources deep enough to actually live out, live out the truth. The false side is, is sometimes, and Adams, I think, was culpable for this. Sometimes that reduces down to an idealism that assumes arrival again that thinks all loose ends can be tied up and so identifies them as being tied up when when really that's just an excuse not to engage in the darker or more difficult areas. You know, they they take the ambiguities that don't fit in their clear categories and they disparage them or write them off for these types of things. They don't include them because they're interested in having no loose ends. So I think that is a danger. One of the things that I've tried to do this year and tried is a good word because I don't know what fruit this will bear. And some of these things sometimes seem to work and other times didn't. But I've really focused the last few years on biblical teaching that is foundational and is more light than heat. And so I did seven weeks on sexuality and we did not talk about the, the do's and don'ts of sexuality, but the why. I did seven weeks on politics and I just said, what is government and how does it fit into God's plans, right? Those were the questions I asked. I didn't tell people who to vote for or even talk about particular issues. I talked about two things. What is politics according to the Bible? And three principles for engaging in politics, which was basically justice, wisdom, and love. Can I, can I, get, can I give some pushback on that? Not necessarily from me, but I'm sort of playing yeah. devil's advocate. Yeah. So, so I, I think what I'm hearing is you saying instead of being this bulldog, you know, having a bully pulpit and just railing on, you know, whatever the other side is, apart from your ideological thoughts and theology, just teach what is true and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to actually shape people through it. No, and no. I think okay, I, I, okay. I mean something different than that, because because I think we need to exemplify and specify our application or, or we're failing. I'm, I'm not like John okay, MacArthur okay. who believes that application is the spirit's job. What I <laughs> okay. do believe though, is that we cannot make application until the foundation is in place. In other right. words, before we can run the software of what Christianity expects, we need to create the hardware of a Christian worldview. And that means right. that means starting in a different place and, and one that we cannot rush. And so, so again, I talk about issues of sexuality every time they come up in scriptures, you know, and mm -hmm. you just teach the New Testament, you got Romans, you got First Corinthians, you got Ephesians, you never escape these things. They're just very present. But the need to go, how does this fit into a Christian framework is tremendously important. And what the reason it's important is because everybody has a framework. But right now, the framework is the framework of this time. And it doesn't matter if it's progressive or con conservative. It has nothing to do with the scriptures. Yeah. Right. And so Amen. we impose we, we bring Christian software to run on pagan hardware and it doesn't work. It, it gets, right. you know, it, it catches an innate hardware driven virus and it changes the software itself. And so. So it's not it's not no heat. And, and I'll, I'll give right, you just one right. illustration. After January 6, I did a four week service, a four week series that I called strange and poisonous fruit out of Deuteronomy. And I said, <laughs> let's just own the places where the things that led to January 6 exist in our camp in evangel evangelical Christianity. And That's I dealt brilliant. with the, the fight for freedom. I dealt with the embracing of hatred and these types mm. of things. So I'm, I'm all about hitting these things. But. We also need to do the other, which is slower, which, you know, and, and when I do those series that are big and theological, I always do a Q&A 
And I don't get asked questions about the framework. I get asked practical and I use those to illustrate. That's part of it for sure. Right. I mean, what, what you're talking about, it's really the heart of what Brian and I try to do on this show, which is we mentioned this in the last episode we did with Scott Sauls. But, you know, we did we, we had the question, should Christians watch sex scenes? And instead of doing a five minute episode, just saying, no, here's three verses. We broke it into two hours and just talked about the why and the, the nuance and the theology of it. So your approach is one I agree with. But what do you say to critics who would say, Justin, you need to tell them who to vote for? Because if you don't or if they vote for the wrong person and then this, this and this thing happens in our society, it's on your hands. Or, Justin, you need to specifically mention this sexuality, this sexuality issue constantly, because if you don't and they go off and they become that, it's on it's on you as their pastor. Yeah, well, you know, there's always first Corinthians and who are you to judge another man's servant? You know, I don't even judge myself. I think that needs to be kept in mind that there's enough room in faithfulness to God where where we stand and fall before him in our context and will not have to compare to another, you know, it's, he's not handling out medals and we're all, we're all pushing for the gold. It is, it is a specific calling that he's given us. So I think that needs to be kept in mind. But the second thing is I would question their premise and I would suggest that that shows that they're working from the wrong framework. If the way that we accomplish Christian faithfulness is to win the world through political power, they're reading a different Bible than I am. You know, and they're incapable of seeing it because of the power of the religious right and the religious left that have formed and shaped these issues so that, again, faithfulness becomes ticking a box of a cultural standard instead of instead of understanding, you know, and answering the questions that the Bible is answering. So I want to begin to wrap up on this kind of closing question. Everything that we've been talking about is setting a new path forward or, or perhaps returning to the old chart of how we move forward. And it's been more than if we just do these three quick habits, then we'll see complete transformation. Yeah. I guess to, to try to close on something of an optimistic note or, or maybe just to set what realistic should be for us. Do you find that you're seeing a hunger for this kind of thinking? Do you find that people really buy into like they're you're proposing something that they actually are craving and so they want to buy into it? And what do you think is kind of a realistic? I know we won't in five years have an entirely different church, but right. what do you think are some of the indicators that we're walking this correctly, that we can kind of draw some hope and inspiration from going forward. Yeah. So I would say the first thing is, is a hope wrapped up in a despair, which is we live in a time where everybody is frustrated with the church, right? There's just a, and actually it's, it's broader than the church. Our, our entire world right now is just hands in the air frustrated and they may put the blame in different places. But what that does is again, it, it creates the possibility of taking new steps and people being intrigued by them specifically because they're not the old. 
which which is good and and is something that it, it's 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 got grief bound up in it and it's it's prone to overreactions like like despair and giving up entirely all of those are part of it but at its heart there's a broad recognition for the need for change and that's great Second, there is absolutely a hunger, even in my little church, for some of these things. So, for example, I spoke with a, a young single guy recently in our church, and he he is just struggling to go about life right now. And the primary problem he sees it is because he's alone. And and not not in the romantic sense, that didn't really come up. But he was saying, you know, could we have an everyday prayer meeting? Because I feel like I just need that daily touch point with this community, you know, and I, I could point to maybe a half dozen other stories that that take a different shape, but point in the same direction of of a recognition that that people's Christian walks were incapable of providing the full abundant life that Jesus talks about and and need a tune up, you know, however, I also want to reiterate again that that the way we need to think about this now needs to be long format enough to not take those hungers as golden and just just try and go too big too quickly. You know, going back to that idea again of the house that's on fire, if we're not going to rebuild the same house, then we got to drop new plans. And that has to be a season, a defined season of time of of thinking and praying and dialoguing. And I think when we bring existing churches into these realities, we have to bring them with us on the process. You can't just expose it to them. You can't just cast vision at the end of this two year journey and try and shift the entire the entire operation in another direction. You have to bring them into the process of thinking about these things. You have to co cultivate the soil theologically and imaginatively of what could be. And then you have to look for small proof of concept versions of this. And we, we could probably fill a whole nother podcast with my current what ifs, plans and possibilities or, or the personal steps that that I'm weighing taking right now. But I think they by nature can't just be harvested from another church, you know, that we can find mm -hmm. examples, yeah, yeah. but we can't just make copies because not only is our context different, but our people are in different places. And so so, yeah, I think if anyone looks around right now and they have even a degree of optimism or in the Christian word hope, they're going to see that there's a lot of possibility for new things right now. And and we're already seeing people leverage that for things that mm. make me wring my hands and are very concerning because they're extreme and and they <laughs> they present themselves as as a new solution but are actually just the old problem, you know. But but I think the underlying need mm. is there and clear. I, I I think if I were going to try to wrap a bow on my thought process through this whole conversation, I think the one of the biggest takeaways I've gotten from this is we as pastors and leaders have a tendency to look at the burning house and focus on the house instead of the people who are affected by the fire. And so for, for me, the takeaway I'm getting is the strategy needs to be look at the people. Like focus on the people who are hurting, focus on the people affected by the flames, the ones who've inhaled the smoke and now they're, they've, they've got lung disease from that. We need to tend to them. We need to focus more, less on our big visions and goals and plans and dreams for our churches and more on just 
very strategically and locally working with our people and loving our people, tending to our people. There's wounds that need to be tended to taking a much more discipleship approach and, 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 a, and a shepherding approach to help people walk through this time in this season. And I think a part of it, 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 it comes with faith and a death of ego because ego says the world is burning. Maybe my church can save it. Maybe if I just have the right sermon series, maybe if I just have the right program, maybe if I just write the right book, maybe if I just invite the right guest speaker, then we'll solve all the problems. But instead having the faith that maybe, maybe God wants to not impact the world on such a big scale through us individually as pastors and leaders, maybe he wants to change the world through the sheep. And maybe our role is to shepherd those sheep. And then collectively, big picture, if we have a ton of churches approaching the problem this way, 10 years from now, we're going to have people who are not still suffering from the wounds of the 2020s, but instead they're, they're stronger and they're able to impact their world on a, on a much better scale. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I think there's things there that really resonate with me taking seriously the pain of our people and recognizing the blindness or, or, inability to look that in the eye that many of our church members have and teaching them how to own it, how to sit in it, as well as how to do the long process of seeking healing, you know, not band-aid solutions, but, but the deep healing that comes only from the Lord and, and through time. And in the same way, I think there is an, a need for shift in perspective, but, but for me, it's more than just lessening our ambitions. It's, mm. it's about changing what we think the goal is, you know, and even the language of to change the world, you know, to, to borrow from, um, Joshua, David Hunter, are we sure that's what we're supposed to be doing as Christians? Because mm. a lot of that is, is a very popular and common thought for our times, but, but it's not really what we see biblically. And, and the truth is the world is going to be set right when Jesus returns. And what I would suggest is we're not working towards that, f but from it. In other words, we're just <laughs> supposed to reflect the coming reality so that people can see and believe uh, in the hope of Jesus Christ. And so that that's going to bear fruit. But but what Hunter says at the end of his book is he says, I'm thoroughly convinced that when Christians change the world most, it's when they recognize that that's not their goal. And, mm. and I think there is still a tendency for us to wean ourselves off of this platform reality that, that sees either Christianity in America or Western Christianity or evangelical Christianity as the savior of the world and recognize the world already has one of those. And we're just yes. supposed to be yeah. saved. That's, that's all we're supposed Amen. to do, you know? And so going back to that idea of politics, what if politics isn't about the kingdom at all? Cause it's not, what if it's simply about loving our neighbor? And so we can't bring the kingdom through politics. We can absolutely love mm -hmm. our neighbor, but we do that not to bring the kingdom, but because we are the kingdom. That distinction yeah. is the Amen. one that we need to recover. Mm. Well, that, that would be a great follow-up episode to bring you on for because I feel like we could talk for two more hours about just that last concept that you threw out there. But this has been a great conversation, man. Brian and I are enjoying this so much. And, you know, as both of us are about to, you know, at the time of this recording, we're about to have our first kids in a few months. Um, you know, we're, we're really just wanting to sit back and learn and listen from as many wise 
older brothers and sisters in the faith. And uh, so this conversation has been really good, man. It's given me a lot to think about. It's given me a lot to process. This is one of those ones I'm going to definitely go back and listen to again, where where I can just listen and not have to be thinking about what I'm going to say next. I've loved this, man. So thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I've enjoyed it too. My pleasure. And I'm excited for you both as a, as a father of five who just ran out of space to put more kids or we'd have many more. I'm, I'm excited for the season you're entering into. And, and I, I'm really glad you gave me the opportunity to talk with you both. Thanks, man. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. If you like our show, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. It seriously helps so much. The more reviews we get, the more people will find us. And so if you want to help the show, please just go on iTunes and leave a quick review. We also love questions from listeners and we love to do episodes focused on questions. So if you have a question and you want us to talk about on the show, send it to our email address, which is goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Send us a question. We'd love to talk about it on the show. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, and it's produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. Our show is a part of the Good Lion Podcast Network, a network of Christian podcasters that Brian and I started with our friends. Check out our website, goodlion.io, where you can find a ton of other Christ-centered, encouraging, and equipping podcasts. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them as they walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and you want to support us, go to goodlion.io slash support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.